Hi everyone, thanks for listening to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Last time, we looked at how Sweden was united in the early 11th century when the lands of the Swedes and the Geats were turned into one kingdom. The two regions were divided by geographical obstacles and cultural differences, not least the fact that the Geats adopted Christianity far earlier than the Swedes, who lived further north with their political and religious centre in Uppsala with its important temple to the old gods, Odin, Thor and Frey. King Eric the Victorious tends to get the credit for being the first king of Sweden, despite the fact that it probably wasn't until the reign of his son, Olav, that both Swedes and Geats were ruled by the Swedish king. Olav was also the first Christian king of Sweden, but even though he tried to ban the old gods and abolish the cult in the temple in Uppsala, he was forced to back down in the face of fierce opposition. But his sons would continue his Christianization efforts, and in the following generations, Sweden became a firmly Christian country, just like Norway and Denmark. Today, we'll once again focus on the political struggle between those two other Scandinavian kingdoms. For roughly 150 years, the Danes had been trying to control Norway, and most Danish kings had also been kings of Norway, sometimes only nominally, but sometimes ruling Norway through a vassal, usually the Jarl from Trøndelag. As a side project, the Danish kings Sven Forkbeard and Knut the Great had expanded their rule to include England as well, setting up an impressive Viking empire surrounding the North Sea. The Norwegians had never been very happy about being ruled by the kings of Denmark, at least not the thin crust of Norwegian elites that had the resources to concern themselves with who was running the country. From time to time, they had used those resources to initiate rebellions and to appoint independent kings. Last time we checked in with the Norwegians, Olav Haraldsson, later Saint Olav, had just failed in asserting his position as independent king of Norway, and he fell in the Battle of Stiklestad on July 29, 1030. So the Danes were back on top, and King Knut the Great had regained control over Norway. Now all he needed to do in order to restore stability and docility in his Norwegian kingdom was to appoint a loyal and competent vassal who could rule Norway in his name. Unfortunately for Knut the Great, this is where things got messy. Episode 29, Tables Are Turning. As some of you might remember, when Olav Haraldsson was pushed off the throne and went into exile in Gordariki, King Knut the Great appointed Jarl Håkon to govern Norway. This was a solid choice, and everyone seemed to be happy about it. Only a few months after his promotion, the young Jarl went to England to marry. The wedding itself went off without a hitch, but Jarl Håkon was eager to get back to Norway to make sure that no one would get up to any funny business in his absence. So he decided to defy convention, and frankly wisdom, and set sail for Norway even though it was late in the year, and the North Sea can be vicious when whipped by winter storms. You probably realize where I'm going with this. I wouldn't have brought up the meteorological conditions if the voyage had been uneventful. Sure enough, Jarl Håkon's ship must have run into a storm or some other problem, because it never reached Norway, and the young, newlywed Jarl was lost at sea. When people back in Norway eventually realized that something must have happened to the Jarl, everyone was devastated. Well, perhaps not everyone. Obviously, Olav Haraldsson saw this as his chance to get back in the game, as we talked about back in episode 27, The Eternal King of Norway. 
but there were at least two more people who thought that the news of Jarl Håkon's death would be to their advantage. These two were rich and powerful chieftains by the names of Einar Thambarskelfir and Kalv Arneson. You see, Knut the Great may have forced King Olav to go into exile, but the ex-king was still alive and kicking. Knut was well aware that Olav hadn't given up on the claim of the throne, so in order to stabilize his rule in Norway, Knut had bought the loyalty of some key members of the Norwegian nobility by dangling the prize of governing Norway in front of their greedy noses. He had promised both Einar Thambarskjælfir and Kalv Arneson that they could succeed Jarl Håkon as the Danish vassal ruler of Norway if something were to happen to the young Jarl. In theory, that was a great idea. This would keep both Einar and Kalv loyal to Knut, and it wouldn't cost him a thing. Chances were that these older men would die long before Jarl Håkon anyway. Except Jarl Håkon had just died, and now both Einar and Kalv were demanding that King Knut fulfill his promise of making them the sole ruler of Norway. There was obviously an unsolvable dilemma here. Knut couldn't make both of these powerful and ambitious chieftains the regent of Norway. He had to disappoint at least one of them. And who knew what kind of damage the loser could cause to Knut's hold over Norway? Whom should Knut choose, Einar or Kalv? Well, turns out his answer was... Neither one of them, instead of appointing one of these ambitious but admittedly competent chieftains as his regent in Norway and risking the wrath of the other one, Knut decided to go in a completely different direction. He went for nepotism and appointed his own son with one of his Danish mistresses, King of Norway. The decision came as a complete surprise, not only because King Knut had already promised the job to two other clearly more capable candidates, but also because this particular son was just a child. He was so young that he had to bring his mommy along with him to Norway when he came to claim his throne. This did not go over well with the Norwegian nobility, and it didn't help that their new boy king soon started to raise taxes and implement all kinds of new laws that enraged the locals. For example, a law was introduced that made the testimony of one Dane worth as much as ten Norwegians. It didn't take long for the offended Norwegians to start planning a rebellion to get rid of their new ruler. Both Einar Thambarskjælfir and Kalv Arneson thought that they would be able to exploit this rebellion to their advantage, but they went about it in different ways. Back when Jarl Håkon drowned, Einar had gone to England in person to remind Knut the Great of his promise to make him regent of Norway after the Jarl's premature and oh-so-tragic death. He now realized that things were about to go down, and he correctly predicted that Olaf Haraldsson would take this opportunity to return from exile. So Einar decided to stay in England, hoping that after the dust would settle, he would be able to show up in Norway and face the survivor of the battle over the Norwegian throne. Whoever would win would be weakened by the fight, giving Einar a better chance at beating him. So Einar stayed away from Norway, and soon enough his prediction came true. Olaf Haraldsson returned home and promptly got himself killed at the Battle of Stiklestad on July 29th, 1030. Kalv Arneson, on the other hand, had never left Norway and was caught up in the middle of all this turmoil. He actually participated in the Battle of Stiklestad, but on the winning side. Some even claimed that it was Kalv who delivered the third and fatal blow to King Olaf. Kalv himself would later vehemently deny this claim, for good reason, as we soon shall see. When Einar Thambarskjælfir returned to Norway and his own lands in the Trøndelag region, 
he started to hear rumors about the miracles performed by Olaf Haraldsson after his death at Stiklestad. You know, his blood healing the blind and all that. And the shrewd Einar saw that this might be his stepping stone to power if he would just know how to use it to his advantage. And it didn't take long for him to figure it out. Einar was the most powerful man in Norway who had not been involved in fighting Olaf, and if he could become the champion of the saintly but conveniently dead King Olaf, this could only be good for his own career. So he did what he could to spread the stories of Olaf's miracles far and wide, using the rising star of Saint Olaf to promote himself. Of course, being the champion of Saint Olaf was all well and good, but that wouldn't give Einar a claim to the Norwegian throne. In fact, the person who had promised him rule over Norway was the enemy of St. Olaf, that is, the king of Denmark. So Einar changed his tactics. He wasn't going to rule Norway personally, but rather become the power behind the throne, a throne made legitimate by the connection to the canonized Olaf. Remember that Olaf Haraldsson had a son? That sickly boy who had been born while the king was sleeping and was named Magnus by some random Icelander? Well, Magnus was still alive and well, living in Gordariki, where his father had left him when he went off to reclaim the Norwegian throne. Einar set out to find the boy and bring him back to Norway to make him king. He brought Kalv Arneson along for the ride, perhaps to ensure that Kalv wouldn't stir up any trouble back home in Norway while Einar was away. In fact, at this stage, it seems that these two former rivals had been united, at least temporarily, in their goal of making sure that Knut the Great, who had double-crossed both of them, would not regain control over Norway. The young pretender Magnus would be their tool to attain power in Norway, and they both hoped to run the country through him. Magnus Olafsson was only 10 years old when Einar and Kalv showed up in Gordariki, telling him that they had come to bring him back to Norway to make him king. The sagas don't mention if Magnus reflected on how that had ended up for his father, only that the young orphan agreed to go with these two strange men to the country of his birth. On the way back west, the party stopped in Sweden, where Astrid, Olaf's widow, was living. She hadn't gone to Gordariki to live in, as an exile ex-queen in her sister's house, but had preferred to stay in Sweden, where her brother, Anon Jacob, was king. When they had all been living in Norway together, when Olaf was still alive and king, Magnus' relationship with Queen Astrid had been tense, to say the least. Not only was he the son of her maid, but he was also King Olaf's only son, a constant reminder to Astrid that her servant had given her husband what she herself had failed to deliver. But now things had changed. When Magnus arrived in Sweden, Astrid greeted him warmly, in stark contrast to the coldness he had been accustomed to receiving from her as long as Olaf was alive. But if Astrid was willing to play nice with her husband's son and heir, her attitude had not changed in relation to his mother. Magnus's mother and the Dowager Queen still did not get along, and they got into fights over rank and precedence at Magnus's court. It didn't help that Astrid kept calling the mother of the king her servant girl. In the end, the two women had to be kept in separate rooms. Compared to handling his mother and stepmother, actually making himself king of Norway turned out to be a walk in the park. It was easy enough to get rid of Knut's almost universally disliked son, who fled back to Denmark with his mother. This paved the way for Magnus being proclaimed king of Norway in 1035 at the age of 11. As king, Magnus encouraged the cult of his father, St. Olav, 
this shouldn't come as a surprise, since it was good for business. If Einar Thambarskjelfir could gain from the glory and prestige of St. Olaf rubbing off of him, just imagine what that glory and prestige could do for the saint's own son. Never mind that he was technically a bastard, born out of wedlock to a woman of vastly inferior social standing. His father was still a saint, and the eternal king of Norway. Magnus had a fancy coffin made for his father's corpse, and he kept the key to the lock for himself. Once a year he opened the coffin and cut the hair and nails that kept growing on his father's perfectly preserved body. Allegedly. We don't really have any proof of that, since Magnus wouldn't let anybody else look inside the coffin. During these early years, Einar and Kav's plan worked remarkably well. Magnus was a pliable child and he mostly did what they told him to do, and not to do. One of the things they made him swear not to do was to seek revenge for his father's death. Too many, too powerful people had been involved in getting rid of Olaf Haraldsson. Starting a vendetta against them would not only seriously harm the social stability of Norway, but also potentially expose the kingdom to renewed Danish attempts at reconquest. That made sense and was probably good statesmanship. I'm sure that the fact that Kalv Arneson benefited directly from this policy, since he had been one of St. Olaf's leading opponents at Stiklestad, had absolutely nothing to do with this piece of advice. But even though they had made the boy swear to let bygones be bygones, the idea that his father's killers were running about freely, living their best lives as respected members of society, bothered King Magnus. And the longer he was king, and the older he got, the more it bothered him. At this point, Magnus was already a teenager, and like so many other teenagers, he became moody and just a little difficult to handle. At a banquet in Trendelag, King Magnus brought up the subject of his father's death, that July day in 1030. Magnus said that he wanted to ride out to see the battlefield at Stiklestad, which happened to be nearby. He demanded that Kalv Arnarsson should accompany him on this little excursion. Hearing this, Kalv realized that his number might be up, but he couldn't flat out refuse the king's request to visit the battlefield, so he went with him. No doubt, he was pretty nervous though. To be on the safe side, before they set out on their little field trip, Kalv sent word home to get one of his ships ready for a hasty departure. At Stiklestad, Magnus demanded that Kalv show him where his father had fallen. Kalv did as he was asked to and pointed out the spot. Magnus then demanded to know where Kalv himself had been standing when King Olaf was killed. When Kalv pointed to where he had been standing, Magnus concluded, Then you could very well be the one who killed my father. At that point, Kalv just jumped on his horse and rode off as fast as he could. Perhaps not the best way to prove your innocence, but he probably figured out that his chances of convincing Magnus were slim to none anyway. When he reached his home, some 38 kilometers away, Kalv must have been exhausted, but he wasted no time on recuperating and instead immediately boarded the ship that had been prepared on his instructions. He managed to escape King Magnus's wrath, but had to stay away from Norway for many years until the political situation had changed. After the escape of Kalv Arneson, King Magnus let go of all restraints. He started to exile and kill anyone who had been on the side of opposing his father at Stiklestad, he chopped off people's hands or heads, confiscated estates and farms, and even killed cattle belonging to his father's opponents. It didn't matter if the opponent was an affluent chieftain or a, a modest farmer with a poor homestead. 
they were all targets for King Magnus' campaign of vengeance. Just like Einar and Calvert predicted, this policy threatened the stability of the kingdom. But Magnus didn't care. He wasn't going to stop just because people didn't like it. In the Sognefjord region, people started to prepare for a rebellion to put an end to the madness. When he heard about it, Magnus started to prepare a preemptive attack on them. Norway was on the brink of a potentially disastrous civil war, exactly what that oath of forgiving and forgetting had been designed to prevent. But just as the manure was about to hit the proverbial fan, the very same random Icelander who'd given Magnus his name all those years ago was sent on a desperate last-minute attempt to convince the king to back down. He did so by composing a poem, begging Magnus to keep his word, not to seek vengeance, and to be a just king. And against all odds, it actually worked. At least according to the sagas, it was this poem that did the trick. Magnus calmed down and decided to call off his destructive campaign of vengeance. There would be no more executions, no more exiles, and no more confiscations. And no civil war. Thanks to this decision, Magnus is known in history as Magnus the Good. It was probably a good thing for Magnus that he made the de that decision and scrapped the idea of a civil war, because his martial energy was needed elsewhere. He may have deposed one of, of Knut the Great's sons, but there were more Knut sons out there. One of them was Harder Knut, the guy who had recently succeeded his father as king of Denmark and England, and who also laid claim to Norway in an attempt to restore his father's and grandfather's Viking empire. Magnus was more than happy to fight to defend his throne, and so it seemed that Norway and Denmark were going to war. Again. But not everyone was as eager to fight for the throne of Norway as the two potential candidates to occupy said throne. It turned out that the enthusiasm for such a war was severely limited both in Norway and in Denmark. In fact, leading members of the Danish and Norwegian nobilities more or less forced the two hot-headed kings to meet face to face at the mouth of the river Jøta Elv, where the two kingdoms bordered on each other. A quick side note, today, that's more or less in the middle of the west coast of Sweden, and the city of Gothenburg is situated at the mouth of that river. But in the middle of the 11th century, the Swedes could still only dream of a port on the North Sea. Magnus and Hardeknut met and decided to forego a war over who should be the king of Norway. Instead, Hardeknut recognized Magnus as the rightful king of Norway, and they made a pact that whoever lived the longest would inherit the other one's kingdom if he died childless. Maybe that clause was just thought of as a symbolic sign of friendship, because there was really no reason to believe that either of them would die without producing an heir, considering that both kings were still teenagers at the time. After the deal had been signed, and twelve trusted noblemen from each kingdom had witnessed it, the two young kings went their separate ways. Magnus went back to Norway, and Hardeknut returned to England, where his mother, Dowager Queen Emma of Normandy, the widow of Knut the Great, ruled in his name. She actually continued to run things in England even after Hardeknut's return, because he, not unlike quite a few teenagers, was more into partying and the good life than the tedious business of governing a country. During one of the many, many feasts that King Hardeknut attended, he rose to propose a toast. But then all of a sudden he collapsed in what must have been quite a dramatic scene and lay dead on the floor. He was only 25 years old at the time, and, you guessed it, he had not yet produced an heir. 
That meant that Magnus the Good of Norway was now the legitimate king of Denmark. When he received the news, the no doubt surprised 19-year-old Magnus hurried to Denmark to claim his new kingdom. In what must be characterized as a surprise development, his and Hardeknut's pact was actually honored and Magnus was declared king of Denmark at the thing in Viborg. That, ladies and gentlemen, meant that a Norwegian king now ruled Denmark instead of the other way around. For 150 years or so, the Danes had tried and tried again to subjugate the Norwegians. And here they found themselves ruled by the king of Norway. The Scandinavian tables had suddenly turned. But just because Magnus had been recognized as king of Denmark, that didn't mean that all the Danes were happy about this new situation. Or that there weren't others who thought that they would be a better fit for king of Denmark. One of these people, who nursed regal dreams of their own, was a man called Sven Estridsson. Now, who was he? And where did he get this idea from that he should be the king of Denmark instead of Magnus? Well, the now-dead Hardeknut had put Sven Estridsson in charge of Denmark when he himself went off to England. But that in itself is no reason to claim kingship. So who was this Sven Estridsson? The short answer is that he was the grandson of Sven Forkbeard, which uh, should give you a pretty good claim to the throne of Denmark. The only problem was that Sven was the son of Sven Forkbeard's daughter, Estrid, so there was no direct male line to back up his claim. This Estrid, daughter of Sven Forkbeard, had married a Danish jarl called Ulf, who was killed after he got into a dispute with his brother-in-law Knut the Great. We've talked about him before, remember? If not, episode 26 of Viking Empire should serve as a refresher. Ulf and Estrid had a son, called Sven, after his grandfather. As mentioned toward the end of episode 26, the boy should have been called Sven Ulfsson, but he preferred Sven Estridsson since his mother was of royal blood and thus outranked his merely noble father. When King Knut the Great killed Sven's father for treason, Sven himself fled to Sweden, where he stayed at King Arnon Jakob's court in Uppsala, where he was treated well. He stayed in Sweden for 12 years, but after his uncle Knut's death, Sven moved to England to stay at the court of his cousin, King Hardeknut. When Hardeknut suddenly collapsed and died at that feast, Sven Estridsson went to Denmark to claim the throne that his cousin had just fallen off. He had some support among the Danish chieftains, who preferred him over King Magnus. But the King of Norway wasn't going to let go so easily. Magnus went to wars to secure his claim to the Danish throne. In the process, he captured and destroyed Jomsborg, where Sven was based. The town was the headquarters of the Jorms Vikings, who had been the force to be reckoned with in Scandinavia for generations, sometimes pestering and sometimes aiding Danish and Norwegian kings. Magnus's destruction of Jomsborg was so thorough that we still don't know for sure where it was located. As usual in these cases, there are some scholars who doubt that it ever existed at all. I guess we'll have to wait for conclusive archaeological evidence to settle that question. But destroying Jomsborg didn't mean that Magnus achieved his primary goal. Sven Estridsson managed to escape, and he would return at the head of an invading army of Slavic tribes in 1043. This army only got as far as Hedeby on the southern border before Magnus and his forces met them. In the ensuing battle, King Magnus fought using his saintly father's battle-axe, with the distinctly non-Christian name Hel, named after the queen of the world of the dead in Old Norse mythology. And as they were getting ready to fight, 
the Norwegians claimed to hear the bell from the Nidaros Cathedral ringing out from heaven, a clear sign that St. Olav was on their side. I am not sure why St. Olav would not be on their side, considering that St. Olav's only son was their leader, but I guess it's always nice to be reassured. With or without St. Olav's assistance, the Norwegians won a decisive victory, and according to the sagas, more than 10,000 of the invaders were slain. But not even this triumph achieved Magnus's goal of getting rid of Sven Estridsson. Sven was nothing if not tenacious, continuing to challenge Magnus's rule over Denmark for years. Soon after the battle with the heavenly soundtrack, Sven Estridsson started another rebellion against King Magnus and declared himself King of Denmark. Several of his Danish supporters welcomed this initiative since they weren't keen on being ruled by Norwegian, and they took Sven to be their king. Unfortunately for Sven, Magnus defeated his army yet again, and Sven Estridsson had to flee to Sweden at the protection of the Swedish king Arnon Jacob, the seemingly eternal host of VIP exiles from Norway and Denmark. The war between Sven and Magnus dragged on for a long time, but it always went the same way. Sven Estridsson returned from Sweden and proclaimed himself king of Denmark, which meant that Magnus had to sail down from Norway to put an end to the renewed rebellion. Magnus would always defeat Sven, but he would always manage to sneak back to safety in Sweden until Magnus returned to Norway. Then, Sven would once again raise the flag of rebellion in Denmark, and the whole circus would start over. According to Heimskringla, Magnus eventually made Sven Estridsson his vassal in Denmark, letting him rule the place in his name. But I'm not so sure. It doesn't sound like a smart thing to do, making the guy who wants to wrest a kingdom away from you the ruler of said kingdom, placing all its resources at his disposal. But who knows? What does have the ring of truth to it, though, is the claim that all this fighting made Magnus realize the importance of his army, and he always made sure that the soldiers were happy. He was so generous that they started to call him Gold Hater, since he seemed to be so quick to spread his wealth around among his warriors. We're going to leave King Magnus there for now, riding high, enjoying his position as King of Norway and Denmark. But already next time, we'll be introduced to a more dangerous challenger than Sven Estridsson, and King Magnus isn't the only one who has reason to be worried by the appearance of this new power player the man who perhaps is more associated with the end of the Viking Age than any other. Before we close up shop today though, I'd like to answer another question that I've received from a listener. I've received a question from a listener called Jennifer. She asks how long the Scandinavians continued to use runes. Well, as a general rule, runes were used throughout the Viking Age and were replaced by the Latin alphabet as Christianity was introduced and permeated Scandinavian culture and society. At first, there was a split where the local language, Old Norse, was written in runes and Latin or other foreign languages were written using Latin characters, more or less corresponding to the modern-day alphabet we use today. But as people started to adopt Christian education, or perhaps I should say education within a Christian framework imported from the continent, Scandinavians abandoned the runes and started to use the Latin alphabet also for their own language. For example, the sagas, perhaps the most iconic example of medieval Scandinavian literature and so intimately connected to the Viking Age, were written down using the Latin alphabet, not runes. This, of course, is because the sagas were actually written down comparatively late, at a time when the runic alphabet had fallen out of widespread use. 
the Latin alphabet was widely used in Scandinavia by the beginning of the 12th century already. But, and this is interesting, the custom of writing with runes lingered in a few places, most notably in geographically and or culturally isolated spots, such as Iceland and the Scandinavian hinterland, perhaps most famously in an isolated river valley in western Sweden called Elvdalen, people continued to use a modified runic alphabet mixing runes and Latin characters until the 20th century, even though the introduction of mandatory standardized schooling in the 19th century brought the Latin alphabet into wider use already some 150 years ago. Approximately 200 inscriptions using these runes have been found, the oldest one from the late 16th century. In this particular region, they also spoke an archaic dialect of Swedish, which had retained several aspects of Old Norse that had been lost in standard Swedish generations before. There is also another fascinating archaeological find that sheds light on late usage of the runes. It's a stash of old runic inscriptions, discovered not in some isolated backwater, but in Bergen, the largest and most important city in Norway for a very long time in the Middle Ages. This virtual treasure trove of runic inscriptions, known as the Bryggen inscriptions, named after the old port neighborhood in Bergen, was found in the mid-1950s. The collection contains some 670 inscriptions carved into bone and wood. Archaeologists have concluded that the youngest of these inscriptions are as recent as from the 14th century, a time when, before these inscriptions were found, it was widely assumed no one in Norway had been using runes for a very long time. The contents of the inscriptions cover a wide range of topics, anything from brief personal notes and business letters to messages of love and even the kind of profanity that you would expect to find scribbled on the walls of a bathroom stall in a gas station restroom. The collection even contains Christian prayers, in Latin but written in runes. That's especially interesting since it flies in the face of the idea that the runic script fell out of use when Christianity was introduced. Instead, it would seem that the runic alphabet was in wide use for several hundred years parallel to the Latin alphabet, even in such important urban centers as Bergen. Thank you for your question, Jennifer. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, please spread the word on Instagram, TikTok, MySpace, or any other digital platform you use to communicate with people about Scandinavian history. Also, please consider leaving a favorable review and a bunch of stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to motivate me to get out of bed in the morning. Another good way to support the show and to dig a little deeper into Old Norse mythology is to go to Amazon or Kindle and purchase my book, Viking Mythology, Thor, Odin, Loki and the Old Norse Myths. I also recommend checking out the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you're interested in more content related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry emails about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then feel free to follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.